And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, fellow coach, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Friends, don't fear. We're here to give the people what they want. That's right. (laughs) And before we dive into today's fascinating and interesting discussion on a very hot topic, just a reminder, it's 2022. Do you want to up your game for coaching? Do you want to get better? Do you want to understand what the best coaches in the country and the world are doing, both past and present? Well, join the Running Scholar Program. We got you covered. We got new courses coming out, dropping. We've got monthly Zoom training talks led by John and I, and we also have some of the best coaches out there joining on. Join our Scholar Clubhouse where you get instant access to hundreds of coaches, including John and I, to help answer your questions, to help you get better as a coach, to give you a space for that, you know, coffee talk, coaching talk that we all know is the place that we get better only now we can do it online even when we're not face to face so get on board you're missing out try it out running scholar program and if you'd like to uh elicit the services of the worst pitch man in the world you can go ahead and drop steve an email anytime (laughs) his services are are pretty uh pretty not sought after so I'm just, I just, I just keep it, keep it real, man. I love it, Steve. I love it. I mean, it sells I, itself. Honestly, it sells itself. Like, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, I, I, I appreciate the sales game. I don't love it, but what I do love is when we're putting out something that has high value. Is I think those things, you know, once you join, once you get on board, you see the value the hundreds of hours that John and I have put into this thing. It's our labor of love. We would do it even if we didn't make money, but we make enough money to keep our wives happy so that we can keep keep doing the things that we love and keep nerding out on running and training. Um, One secret to a good marriage right there. That's right. Steve dropping wisdom bombs. So help us out. Allow us to keep nerding out. Allow us to keep going deep dives on, you know, uh, uh, esoteric training books from the 1940s so that we can pass that knowledge on to you. I I just got the Jumbo Elliott biography, Maker of Milers, Maker of Men. So I'm excited to read that and get that up because Jumbo was a really, really, really good coach. but there's not a lot, whole lot on them. So, yeah, I'm excited to get that up, get that process so people can have a, a reference points for Jumbo Elliott. Yeah. Oh, yes. Long time Villanova, great coach. Yes, one of the, the almost forgotten to a degree coaches who was the man. Like the number yeah. of, of, of elite level milers and NCAA champion level milers that he produced is just astonishing. So, yeah. I'm looking forward yeah. to that. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's it's kind of my like, uh, you know, no coach left behind act, if you will. We want to <laughs> make sure while the media is available, we can find it, procure it, get it up there, you know, so we have a history for young coaches, you know, veteran coaches, coaches from other disciplines who can look back at the historical record and see what did prior historical coaches create in solutions without the internet, without a keen, you know, awareness of physiology. What are the tools and problem solving skills they use to get people faster? Because they did. And it's really fascinating when you look at it. Yeah. You know, as I think about it, John, it's interesting because there is no like history of distance running or middle distance running or anything like that. There's no course you can take. And that's one of, I think, or there's no real good books you can read that summarize it in a, in a great manner. You really have to do the work. And that's something that one of our, you know, uh, coaching mentors, Vern Gambetta, really, really pushed early on when when I know both of us started interacting with him. And it's been of real value. So I, I 
almost see it as our job, our mission to to do that, to keep the coaches, you know, that history alive, to put it in one place. And that's what we're trying to do. So, yeah, I mean, some of those books, you know, they're like five, six hundred, a thousand dollars. And people are like, we're like, go read it. And like, it costs a thousand dollars to read this book. That's there's like only how many copies available on the Internet. So rather than that, we have a nice dollar a day alternative. Call this call. That's right. All right. So speaking of coaching, let's get into today's topic. Does what you're measuring actually matter? I'm excited. Age old question right here, man. <laughs> it, it really Age-old is. Question. And you know, if if you go back like we have and you read some of these old books, you're going to see this question pop up, right? And it pops up all the way back, you know, to the stopwatch, but really, really kind of took hold with Valdemir Gerschler, like started measuring heart rate with intervals, right? And you had this pushback in in some regards of like, does that matter? What does that actually tell us? Is this arbitrary? This get your heart rate up to 180 on the hard stuff and then down to 120 on the, the, you know, the recovery, then go again to get back, back to 180. And there's been this kind of back and forth ever since, you know, we were able to measure stuff only nowadays. It's not in the labs. It's not in fancy equipment. A lot of times it's sitting on sitting on our watches right now as you're listening, as we're speaking, you know, our watch can tell you everything that uh, nearly everything that a lab, you know, 50 years ago would be required to, to tell us. Yeah, it's wild what, you know, all the things a, a smartwatch can tell you, like, you know, your your pace, your steps, your heart rate, uh, the distance you've traveled, like just a myriad of and more and more, it seems like by the day and by the year, it's, you know, it's a little bit of uh, information overload, to tell you the truth, a lot of noise. Yes, exactly, exactly. And we're going towards, you know, HRV and you know, Apple watches, blood, um, you know, oxygen saturation and all this stuff. And it's only get, it's only going to get wilder and and crazier and, and all that stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, for instance, there's, there's not in your watch yet, but it'll probably come soon. There's a, a moxie monitor that can measure, you know, muscle oxygen saturation. So, we're going down the wild world of being able to measure more and more stuff. And I think it warrants a step back, a little bit of perspective to say, to ask the question, okay, great. We can measure it, but doesn't matter. We can measure it, but what is it actually telling us? Is it telling us something that has, you know, reliable, um, information that causes functional coaching or training changes. And it really depends on the athlete population you're working with, right? So if you're working with kind of that elite upper echelon athlete who's been, you know, running for over a decade and is trying to scratch the extra 1%, you know, so to speak, the marginal gain, so to speak, in their performance, it may because all other roads have been exhausted. But if you're working with, like, say, the the novice or new athlete, the high school athlete, uh, junior athlete, or even, um, you know, a good collegiate athlete or post-collegiate athlete, one of the key things I've found, and if you look back through the arc of coaching history, is the coaches at those levels who had unparalleled and sustained success really had an enthusiasm for running and then were able to infect their pupils with that enthusiasm for running. So like the Maywood Park boys, right, in 1970 with Rudy Chapa, where they had three or four guys, and this is in the 70s, right, under nine minutes for 3,200. They were running 100 miles a week because that was the thing to do. They loved running, right? York High School cross country, 150 mile weeks in the summer. It was something to do. You know, there was a enthusiasm from Joe Newton about running and what running could bring to young high school boys. You know, there's just 
Rob Connor at UP, right? Very limited resources, not a whole lot of, you know, history before he got there in distance running. Created a powerhouse cross-country program. Why? Because the number one question he asked recruits is, do you love to run? And that's, I mean, really at the end of the day, we we have you have to you can't overlook that enthusiasm and joy for the act of running and training before you start to make it this mathematical equation of how many miles a week are we going, how many, you know, how fast are we going, what's my HRV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Without that as a foundational element, it doesn't matter. You can have all the fancy tech in the world. Nothing's going to get done. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of um, of the cartoon that you shared that that the fantastic coach Dan Path sent along. And I'm just going to read it real quick and maybe we'll put it in the show notes. And so it's two runners talking and one or, t- you know, two people talking. And uh, one says, hey, how was your run? The other says, awesome. I ran 10.3 miles at 743, pace 28% in zone three and 916 feet of vert. The other runner responds, was it fun? There's a pause. The runner looks down at his watch and says, doesn't say. <laughs> and, you know, I, I love that because I think it gets at what you just pointed out there, which is we can we, we can index on external markers and measures, which come from our watch or stopwatch or heart rate monitor or whatever you have. And we also have like internal markers which are effort and then also emotions like excitement joy all those things right and i think often what happens is we tend to rely on the external markers because we think they're more objective right they give us information that we can quantify the internal markers we can't quite quantify them they're more you know uh, qualitative measures instead of quantitative measures, but that doesn't mean we should neglect or negate them. And I think often what happens is in the coaching world is we jump straight towards the the the, the quantitative, the measures that give us some sort of you know objective number or seemingly objective number, and then we focus our attention and coaching to those figures to that data because what what often happens in whenever whatever we measure that's going to become important right if we're a believer in heart rate training guess what heart rate is now a very valuable thing and our coaching is going to drift towards that if all of a sudden we get a lactate measuring device guess what our coaching is starting is going to drift towards that. You've seen this at, you know, at every marker of being able to measure something new. That thing, because we can now measure it, gains in importance. Once we were able to measure VO2 max, guess what? We're going to measure it on everybody. And it is the, it's, it's the thing, you know, for a while. Yeah. Once it became lactate, the gold standard for sure. Gold standard. Once lactate was able to measure, guess what? And that you know, lactate threshold is the thing. You know, it is the thing we need to improve. Same with heart rate for a while. You know, we're you know in cycling, you've you've seen power become mm-hmm. the thing in running. It hasn't quite hit that level yet, but. The key is, and it's not to discount any of these things. They all all give us important information, but you need to be aware of, um, you need to be aware of what they're actually telling you, and not fall for the like overemphasis of it just because we can measure it. I think yeah, that's important to understand. Like when we talk about training, we talk about a variety of loading schemes, right? And we see when we look in the arc of history all these different types of loading schemes and sequence of loading schemes. And it tends to be the narrative of that arc is this linear progression, this step-by-step, right? Where it's like, we got a little bit better, 
date pace becomes goal pace. The general conditioning, you know, translates into foundational or fundamental and then to specific and then to this extreme performance. And our brains are very good at processing linear because when you look at numbers in a linear fashion, it makes sense. There's not a lot of friction cost associated, et cetera, et cetera. However, the reality is growth happens in spurts, right? Like, you know, the, the old fable, the Chinese bamboo tree, right? Nothing happens for five years and then in five months, it grows six feet. If you think of puberty for young, you know, boys and girls, like you, a kid leaves uh, high school as a freshman or sophomore, comes back next summer or at the end of summer as a junior. And all of a sudden this guy, the high school boy has a, be- a beard and that out of nowhere, right? I mean, or uh, growth spurts in kids where it's like, ah, that kid grew six inches in five months. Those are pretty extreme, nonlinear, exponential moments. And that's really how we have to actually think about training. However, it's very hard to you know organize and systematize a methodology around unknown exponential spurts. The best way to do it is to set yourself up for the exponential bump, right? And this is where we talk about a lot of like the foundation. What's the foundation of your training? And it's very difficult to measure the most important, say, running metric out there, running economy, because we know hands down that that is the most determinant influencer of success. Yes, you have to have a certain VO2 max to get in the elite um, athlete, you know, locker room. Yeah. You have to have a certain, you know, body proportion to be in a successful marathoner. It's going to be really tough for, you know, a six, five person with a lot of surface area on their skin to be a successful marathoner just because so much oxygen has to go to the, you know, the skin to cool it, et cetera. But once we get past all those, like, you know, peripheral things, and we start to go, okay, what really matters here? A lot of stuff that really matters, we don't have good measurements for yet. We have proxies, right? Lactate's a proxy measurement. We know that acidosis and lactate both are byproducts of, you know, the ATP Krebs cycle. And we can measure lactate, but we can't measure the acidosis. So we say, okay, if lactate's this, then that means their acidosis or positive H ions must be at this level, et cetera. And so we make these leaps, right? But that's what science is. It's one leap to the other and disproving what we once thought initially to be untrue, but true in a different way. Like lactic acid used to be the bad guy, right? No longer. So I think when we step back, we have to go, we have to always, always remember the lab coats and the, the research papers are valuable, but they never can discredit the ability of the coach as an artist to synthesize all the stuff to help color their feedback and interpretation about what's happening. We just now have so much more subjective um, feedback that it can help us interpret what's happening, um, you know, a lot more uh, accurately than ever before, but still there is an a element of inaccuracy and we have to be okay with that tension. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I'm glad you brought up that most of the things we can measure are proxies. And I think this isn't an anti-measuring podcast. What this is, is a remember what you are measuring and what value it actually brings. Okay, lactate, for example. I've measured lactate at various points in my career. Um, I think it's interesting. I think it tells you some interesting information. But you have to keep it in check on, this is what it tells me. This is the accuracy of it with this person. This is, this is um, you know, what the research papers tell me, but like there's human variation in that. To give you an example, in the coaching world, often with lactate, we sit, we're saddled with, um, you know, four millimoles is where lactate threshold is. That is not entirely true when you look at all the variation. (laughs) That's the average. And as we said before, like there's no average cockpit for a 1950s flyer jet. No one could fit in it. (laughs) Yes. Sometimes that lactate threshold will occur at two millimoles. Sometimes, you know, even up to five, six millimoles. Okay. So you got to know these things. Same with, you know, heart rate. Yeah. Heart rate can be useful. 
unless you're spending your time in a Houston summer where you are pulled with sweat, then it has like very little use. Or if you go to, to higher intensities, it has very little use. Miles can be great. You know, your GPS watch can be great. It can tell you stuff. Maybe not if you're running through trails in the woods that have lots of switchbacks or, or tree cover. Like Then whether it says 5.8 or 6.1 or that you ran that last mile in 5.45 or 6.30, you might it might not matter. It doesn't, it, you know, maybe you shouldn't pay attention to it. So it, it's more about looking at the trend line, really. Like that's the value of it. Like I, I know now in December, January, and February, my resting heart rate will drop down to like 34, 35. Why? It's colder. So my, my body doesn't need to like cool and create as much sweat. I burn hot. I sweat a lot, right? I don't, I'm not going to do well in a Houston, Texas environment like Steve. And then in the springtime, it, you know, graduates up to like 38 to 40. And then in the summertime, it's like 42. It's not like I'm getting any less fit. I'm doing any less or more work or anything. It's just the ambient temperature is higher. And because of that, when I'm sleeping or resting, my heart rate is a little bit higher by a couple clicks per minute. You'd be like, oh, in the summer, you're five or six beats higher than you are in the winter. You must be overtraining in the summer. Nope. I have years and years of data to show the general trend in an explanation of that's why. Now, if we started to say, okay, there was a wild swing. It started with like 65, like double my resting heart rate in the winter. Something might be up, right? So, you know, like I tell my wife all the time, like her whoop track strap is notoriously inaccurate on her heart rate when she's working out and it's like i don't care like she got a new heart rate monitor that was probably a little bit more of a better proxy of where she's at like a garmin and it's 15 beats it registers 15 beats per minute or per you know per minute lower but the trend line's exactly the same and like that's what i care about is the trend line i go don't worry about the specific numbers we just want to see the trend line that's the value of it and then correlate the work you're doing with that trend line that's it you can tell me if you're working hard or not like i will just talk to you i don't need your beats per minute to like tell me this i just want to see this general trend line and so that's where the value of these measurements for me come in is seeing that but investing so much in like oh was your heart rate at this you know, beats per minute as you're working out. Well, that must mean you're in zone two. And we, we need to be in zone four, da, 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 da. a little overkill. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you put that out because it's like, you need some buffer, right. And understanding that measurements shift and change and they aren't as objective or hard as we often think they are. Right. Um, and I, I think this applies also when we talk about zones in, in training, right, which are relatively, you know, last 20 years or so, a uh, recent kind of explosion of like, well, let's classify all our training by zones. That makes sense for analyzing stuff because, you know, we need, it makes it easier to analyze training and get broad general principles out of it. But I think it's very important to realize that when we look at zones, they're very arbitrary. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yeah, sometimes we tie them to certain like physiology stuff and we say, well, this is uh, above, you know, this zone is between your first lactate turn point and your second lactate turn point, or this zone is above VO2 max, but it's, it's, it's largely arbitrary, right? It's just so that we can have some sort of um, some sort of way to classify training in a relatively, you know, uh, consistent manner. Because, you know, as a coach, you sit there and would I just say, you know what, anything faster than 3K pace is relatively the same. No, as a coach, I'd be like, you know what, if you're running 3K pace, that's kind of it. And well, let me put this in another light. If you're running 400s in 66, that's going to be a very different stimulus than 459. <laughs> but, you know, 
in our in our zones, we kind of group them together. Same when I if I say, hey, John, like you're going to go run a, a threshold run at 505 pace. Well, guess what? That's a very different stimulus than, you know, uh, maybe a marathon pace 535 type, you know, effort out there. But in the zone training, we kind of push them all together so that we can get a, a rough thing. So if you're sitting there and you're being like, you know, I spent this much time in zone two or zone four this week and that's too much. That's not how you look at it. You know, it's meant for a zoom out over the entire season. It's like the broad worldview of if you if you want to use zones, it's like, well, you know what? Over, you know, this periodization, this six month block, I was doing a lot of very intense work, maybe more than I should have. I didn't have enough, like I was not going as easy as I I thought I would. I didn't have as much high volume in our easy zones. That's all right. But if you're zooming in on week to week or even, you know, three week training block to three week training block, like you're missing the boat. Like they're not that accurate. And I think that's where we go wrong. And a lot of these things we measure is we we get fooled into the uh, objectivity of a number and we don't see it's like true and real value. And that, I think, is where we have to step back and we have to go, like, not every, all measurement is created equal, right, of what we're measuring. We try to, like, quote unquote, simplify it and streamline it. And what I mean by this is a lot of endurance studies are on cyclists and swimmers, some and, and on runners, but mostly on cyclists and swimmers, right? And that makes sense. But when you look at the construct of swimming and cycling, the movement pattern, it is generally the same range of motion, right? No matter if you're going fast or slow, the you're on a bike, you're locked in. That that range of motion on the pedal stroke is the same. You can control, manipulate your force output. Same thing with swimming, right? You're not going to have a shallow, you know, one eighth breaststroke. It's just it's going to be the full stroke. It's just you're going to apply more pressure or more, or more muscle output to make yourself go faster. In running, it's much different. The range of motion at the hip joint of your femur going back and forth, running at your 100 meter speed, your 400 meter speed, your mile speed, your slower than marathon pace speed are all very different movement patterns. They're all very different ranges of motion. Even in weight training, right? You can manipulate that and do a more shallow range of motion of something. But you could, but in weight training, you can also manipulate the load by the amount of weight you're pushing, right? Or not. In running, we can't do that. So you have to fundamentally say every pace is for the brain and for the body a different movement pattern. So when we step back and we go, okay, we'll look at someone's training and go, oh, I run 100 miles a week. It, that's not good enough. When we think about, let's say, like the polarization model, right? And say, oh, you know, the elite Kenyans run this much at this pace and this much at that pace. Well, what are they doing, right? So when you're running really, really slow, you're not really working the specific movement pattern of the running motion of a 202 marathon. What are you working? Well, you're working the heart, right? And so they're going as slow. It's almost a walk, right? Pulley, pulley. And Kenyans are also known to take long strolls, like two, three-hour walks, right? That's actually building up the heart because the heart primarily is on fatty acids, you know, as a fueling substrate. Like that muscle's always pumping. So it's more like heart training, right? And it's a general adaptation that has specific um, influences on what we want as endurance athletes. But I would not call their poly-poly run training. I would not call it that because it's not. It really is. It's, a, it's like, think of it like cross training, like weight training, because they're a different movement stroke, right? Now, when they're running, you know, in the Canova world, things around plus or minus 20% of goal race speed that's actually specific training. And again, we get fooled because the motions and movement is kind of similar, but it's like shooting, the pulley-pulley is like shooting jump shots on a seven-foot hoop. And, you know, the actual marathon, like, you know, quote-unquote hard training is like shooting baskets on a 10-foot hoop. It looks similar, but it's wildly different movement pattern. And because of that, we have to step back and go, ah, when you look at the percentage of time of, say, the weekly allowance of mileage or time, I should say, rather, time spent practicing 
that type of intensity and that type of movement stroke and movement pattern for the body, that carriage, as some would say, it's significantly higher in the East African training culture than it is in the Western training culture. And when you look back and you color the landscape appropriately, you go, oh, that's why they're better. They practice more at this speed more frequently than we do. We practice more at you know, different gradients lower on the scale. And we think that that's going to translate to running a fast marathon at like sub 206 pace, even with super shoes. And it doesn't. It's pretty darn clear. But we're so wedded to this idea of get your miles in, what's your weekly mileage, that we will doctor that number any way, shape, or form. Mostly, at, you know, Africans, they swear by a rest day, swear by it. And it's good practice, right? Sunday is the day of no, no running, time with family, church, re- regeneration. They don't give a shit about their weekly mileage, right? We see that seventh day as a way to get more miles in. For what? What, is it, what are you doing? I don't know. It's you're you're compromising the body's ability to recover. What are you are crazy people? But because we told ourselves this story that oh, your miles per week is what matters, and people reaffirm and you know constantly reinforce that story. How many miles are you get this week? How many miles are you get this week? As it's some vanity metric that is now you can make public more than ever on Strava, etc. We, we we keep shooting ourselves in the foot. How do we know this to be true? Look at the evidence. The 100 fastest times in the marathon this year, one American named Galen Rupp, who's had a lot of help over the years, is in the ballpark. And he's like at 50. And everyone has super shoes now. Like, we still suck. <laughs> I mean, let's just be called a spade a spade. Despite everyone's good efforts, everyone's living at altitude. We have all this funding. We have all these groups. We did everything that, you know, the quote-unquote Kenyans and Ethiopians are doing, and yet we, as men, American marathoners, still suck. It's not, don't get mad, get better. Like, because obviously what we're doing, even still, is not working. All right, go on the Sorry, rant. Sorry, a little bit of rant and a little tangent, but that's what we do here, my man. That's <laughs> what the people want. All right. A little rant, a little tangent. That's that's what we should call this podcast. <laughs> that's really what we, yes, you're right. That is, what that, that is what it is. So Stephen John's rants and tangents. That's that's right. No, I you know, is it the marathon is an interesting uh puzzle to to solve. And I think you bring up some some um yeah, some interesting questions and, and challenges there that I think are worth asking and thinking about because we have you know all of a sudden we got the groups we got the altitude we've got the training together at a high level blah 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 etc etc and um if especially if you just for the super shoes we're still stuck at you know the frank shorter time levels you know 50 yeah. 60 years ago later or whatever it is you know i mean just... we got young young pros running like yeah 2 210 212 213 thinking they did something when it's like no dog people who had full-time jobs you know wife and kids you know responsibilities who trained at night you know in cardboard shoes ran those times like 60 years ago it's without super shoes i mean come on yeah so it is a, you know it is interesting and i think I think, again, if you look at the history, like these sort of arguments go back all the way. But one of my favorites is um, the Percy Sarity versus Fran Stample, you know, period, because Stample was the advisor to Bannister. So his kind of M.O. was we're going to measure these workouts. We're going to do 10 by 400 and they're going to start at 66 and then we'll go 64 and down to 62 and 60 and whatever. Everything was measured, right? Everything was cool, calculated. Let's do this. Uh, Saturday was like, and I'm summarizing here badly, but he was like, what are you doing? Like, we're going to go run up and down some sand dunes and then go to the track, you know, the grass field and run some intervals. And, you know, I'm just going to we're going to stop when they look like they need to stop, you know, 
And, <laughs> and then we're going to go run over and take a dip in the ocean. And, and that, that's what our training is. You know, what are you guys doing? And it's, it's interesting because I think to a degree, like both sides obviously work. Both sides obviously, you know, have value. But I think we lose out a little bit when we we go too far in 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 one direction and i think with the hyper measurement the hyper quantification of things um the measures start driving the training and we need to get a little bit back to that serity or that 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 kenyan style of like learning to listen to our bodies learning to you know understand what we're trying to do and i think that frees us up a little bit you know let me say one more thing on this and then i'll turn it back over to you i remember you know gosh this goes back several years ago but having a conversation with sarah hall and she had just started doing some training trips in ethiopia and uh in east africa and i remember her telling me she said, you know, what happens is some of these athletes, you know, they go to a race, these East African athletes, they go to a race, they have confidence that they're going to, you know, set such and such record or win such and such, even though they haven't, you know, done, let's say the, the standard mile repeats that indicates they could do that, Right. And they go over there and she would be like, sometimes they do it. And you're just like, what in the world? Other times they blow up and fail spectacularly, but then they come back and you ask them how, how the race was and whatever. And they'd say, next time, next time, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like yep. next time mm -hmm. I will set the record. And it's like, mm -hmm. next time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know that she, her comment was kind of like the Americans, we'd be like, holy crap, we just blew up. What is wrong with my training? Like, what did I do? What did I do wrong here? Am I not in shape? Like, what's what in the world's off? You know, and we we go searching and seeking for the answer and all this stuff. And that's not bad sometimes. But her point was like, often, you know, they don't. And and I think that comes back to some of this. We're a bit more scientific, a bit more um, objective on our training and falling for measures, which then, which we see as like the advanced way to do things. But it often limits us and gets in our way because, you know, let me, let me put it in a different way that I think might resonate. When we, when you first started running, John, you were a little clueless. You didn't know what workouts meant. You didn't know what translated to what races. You didn't know it was wrong to jump from maybe four, a 450 mile down to a 430 in a couple weeks. It was just, it just happens, right? And I think we lose a little bit of that as we get narrower and narrower in our running kind of obsessed worlds and we start to put limits and constraints on us subconsciously based on you know well i need to be able to do this in order to run or race this and that often gets in our way 100 percent. we in the west i found and this has been recent and i will definitely blame you know Jack Daniels for this. I won't blame him as the businessman trying to sell a book because God, it sold books, man. He moved paper with the Dan Daniels distance running formula and to Jack's credit, he has been a pioneer and someone who throughout the arc of the kind of physiological revolution here has been at the forefront with really good sound advice and really, you know, scientifically based measures that gave us a lot more clarity about what we're doing. But the, you know, asterisk in his legacy is that, you know, effing formula tables and correlations of V dot. It sucks. It's wrong. It's not right. Yeah. It's kind of in the ballpark, but the thing is, is like, 
it's a general map, a general compass to kind of orient you, but to take those things with rigidity, rigidity and rigid, um, you know, cl- uh, you know, if you want um, stubbornness, so to speak, is a fool's errand, right? So, and I think that's what a lot of people do because there's comfort in prediction, right? We love this idea of prediction. What's 2022 going to bring? What's this person going to run? This person predicts this. I mean, Nostradamus, right? The farmer's almanac, you name it, the weather report. What's it going to do tomorrow? (laughs) We spend an enormous amount of time, money, resources, energy predicting, and we never stay in the moment. And this is what I, having coached several East Africans, I find really uh, sobering and um, excite, exciting about. They are so in the moment. They're just focusing really, it's really much like meditation or Buddhism, right? All that matters is this rep. All that matters is this lap. We'll get to the next one when we get to the next one in whatever condition we get there. And when I started running, I was a soccer player and I my first cross-country race ever was the like Portland Dis- City District's freshman, you know, championship race. Cause you could just, you know, our coaches were like, all right, yeah, Hey, we don't have a game. You're a freshman. Go ahead and run. I was on the varsity soccer team, midfielder running all day back and forth, chasing a ball. Right. And my goal was just simply just to stay in the front as long as possible and see what happened. And I ended up getting second. I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) But that was it. That was, there was no, it was no, I mean, no grandiose race plan, no like, oh, I've done this much work to give me confidence. And that's really at the end of the day, I think what a lot of this, um, these measurements, these shallow, these superficial measurements like mileage, pace, et cetera, are all about. It's giving people confidence to go take action. And if you need that story, if you need that to be told, hey, you did all this work, you have permission to go take a risk. By all means, it's useful. But when you sit back and look and study what's going on in East Africa and the quote-unquote Kenyan secret, it's not a secret. And they'll tell you it's not a secret. It's a lot of freaking hard work, for sure. And that we would go, oh, they're overtraining. But they're not. Because we look at like St. Patrick's School with, um, you know, Brother O'Collum. You go in there and it's like, what you have is you have a story of all these great Kenyan champions because they have trees planted. They tell it every day. They say, David Rudisha passed through here. This person passed through here. So on and so forth, right? Viola Kiplaga, you name it, right? And it's like all these people have come through these doors. And this is where they got their start. And so the little, you know, East African, Kenyan, you know, pupils like, hey, maybe that could be me too. And it's reaffirmed with the daily practice. It's reaffirmed with like, you know, what Brother O'Collum does where he says, no, with the juniors, they like they just run in a 300 meter, you know, circle in the courtyard. And all he does with the juniors is take them aside and correct their technique, get some, you know, what he thinks is good technique. And it's tough to put an objective scientific measurement on how much of the fascial sling and energy return a Kenyan's getting, that quote-unquote bounce you see in them, because we don't have a measure for it yet. But that is one of the key reasons why they're so good, is their technique allows them to use less oxygen, improve running economy, and they bounce off the ground rather than trying to you know, accelerate their body mass every step off the ground. It's very subtle, very interesting, but it's a really big, big seismic shift in mindset where like, I'm a part of this narrative. I'm a part of the St. Patrick's school. These Olympic champions, world record holders came through here. And so I'm the next in that lineage. And that is just time and time again, you know, one of the big secrets to quote unquote culture, right? It's the same that happens at NAU. It's the same that happens at UP, right? Like I saw these things, you know, firsthand. I see them firsthand. And that's one of the big secrets why these teams continue to be successful and prosper is once you get that momentum and then you get the right people who feel, you know, a need and desire to want to contribute to that legacy and elevate that legacy and sustain that legacy. It's like the Kenyans with steeplechasing, right? Like for years, men's side just dominated steeplechase because it was a fundamental part of their identity as a, 
you know, athletics federation and nation. I mean, that is a big part why all this stuff happens. For us, we use measurement to give us that confidence versus places that have a really strong culture and strong tradition use other people and the histories of other people to give them that confidence. And that's tough to put in an objective measure. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that that culture piece, and you see it at the 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 high school level as well. You know, the Joe Newtons and York High School, um, the Coach Greens and the Woodlands High School, like that tradition and that culture go a long, long way, longer a longer way than whatever specific training that they are doing. And I think that is as as part of the magic that is often lost, even in terms of Sarity, like wasn't a long tradition, but he created this culture, especially at the, um, you know, the weekend trips to, to Portsea. And I think that's, that's, you know, that's the magic secret sauce, just like Brother Calm Connell has done at St. Patrick's and all that stuff where it, and, and I think it, it to a large part alleviates the doubts and the questioning and all that stuff and gives you that confidence to know that if you follow through on this, like good things are going to happen. Yeah. Even someone like say Ron Dawes, right. Who was a quote unquote, one of the first literary disciples back in the sixties. And very similar to what Frank Shorter did. He just realized I wasn't running enough um, to be a good marathoner. So I just started running more, but not just running more really pulley, pulley easy, running a lot harder, more kind of that just right at like what we would call today, you know, sub lactator, sub, you know, uh, anaerobic threshold type running or right around there. Right. And that was a part of his training, but he also called for balance. He also called for some days are going to be 30 mile long runs. And then the next day is going to be a four mile shakeout. Right. And he built a little culture in Minnesota with other like-minded seekers who had the time and energy and, you know, enthusiasm to do it. Right. And that's like, if you look at like, say Frank Shorter, he wasn't necessarily an Island on himself. He had a couple other people around, even like with the different groups, you know, that we've had Steve, where it's like, you know, U of H or, you know, high performance West in the day, all we're doing is creating a culture of people and saying, Hey, it's okay for us to get together and do this stuff and think this way and get excited about these things. And someone had to be the pie piper, right. To um, get people on board with it. Kind of how the sprint culture at U of H with like, you know, Leroy and Carl is just so, so strong because you got these two medalists who were the guys back in the eighties and nineties who are like, yeah, spring's freaking awesome. And this Houston's the place to do it, man. Love it. And that gets people excited to start to believe. Because when, especially we're young, and even throughout our life, we're all creating constantly and recreating our identity and our self-construct. And, you know, if we have better stories, we can have a, you know, a more compelling self-identity, self-construct, and we can go further. And without that, uh, or limited by that, if the story is just my numbers and I'm only as good as my bank account of volume or my bank account of splits, say, that it does create a self a certain self-limiting story. And I think we as coaches need to be sensitive to that subjective measure of the narrative someone's telling in their heads about their uh, ability and the permission that they have, along with the objective narrative of this is the work you've done for this long. And we as coaches are kind of wayfinders or, um, you know, guides in that regard of saying, hey, you've done enough work to give yourself permission to take this risk. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, the more I think about it, it's, and I know we started with measurement, but <laughs> giving our, our tangents, is, it's great that we ended up in this. The more I think about it is the coach's job is to, free people up to perform, you know, and sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes the measurement gets in the way. It constricts and restricts. It tells you, oh, I'm only this good. Oh, I predict that I will run this based on this. And I think that gets in the way, you know, that 
constrains us. It tells us that we're only this good. It puts in our head kind of a panic mode, an alarm that goes off if we're running beyond what we think our capacities are in a race. And I think as coaches, our our goal is to free people up to perform, to take, you know, take appropriate risks. And often that means, you know, letting go of the measurement. You know, one of the things that I would often do, especially when coaching college kids at Houston, is we'd be doing a workout, doing a workout, you know, and then I'd, I'd, it'd be one of these workouts where we, we were going to kind of blast the last rep whatever the last rep was. And often what I do is I'd be like, all right, give me your watch, you know, take your watch off. I'm not giving you splits. I just want you to go hard for this mile or 800 or whatever it is, you know? And it inevitably what happens is they'd run significantly faster than they thought they would or actually did. How do I know this? Cause I'd ask them often for fun. I'd be like, what do you think you can run? You know? And I'd be like, Oh coach, I think I can run 445. And then they'd go run 4.30 or whatever it is. Or even afterwards, I'd be like, all right, what do you think that was in? You know, oh, I think that was a 4.40. No, it was a 4.25. And so, and it was often like that. And they'd be like, what in the world? And you'd be like, you're capable of it. You know, I, I'll never, I've told this story before, but back in my early days at U of H, like I had the phenomenal athlete who wasn't running up to what I, I thought his potential was. And I was in really good shape. Again, it was my first couple of years there, maybe a second or third year. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to take you through this stuff. Take your watch off. I'm not going to tell you the splits. We're doing mile rebeats. We're going to get faster. You know, the last one, we're going to blast it. And the last one, you know, I led every step, didn't tell him any of the reps. And, you know, we ended up averaging, I don't know, 420 or something like that with the last one being 414, 415. And at at that time, you know, at that time, his best mile was like 408 or something, something like that. I'm like, all right, time to get like, get your head out of your ass. Like, look what you just did. Like, you can do this. And then he PR'd in a 1500 and 800 really big after that. Um, So... Sometimes, you know, you got to get rid of the thing, which is often the measurement that holds you back. Don't make it be a constraining force, like free yourself up to perform. I I do that all the time, Steve, is using the measurement to, yeah, be to alleviate or free people's minds. Like that uh, tactic you use of have someone run a, a, a rep and then ask them what they think it was and then show them the time. That is probably my one of my go-to, you know, tricks with an athlete who is just has a constraining narrative in their head. And it works. It's really valuable because it starts to give let them give permission to think of themselves as a, a little bit different, as you know, quote unquote, a little bit better. And then when they think of themselves as a little bit better of an athlete or better of a runner or faster of a runner, because they did it in practice going on feel, and then the time recorded this, they go, Oh wow, I guess I have permission to race a little bit more aggressively. And then it's a self-preparing, perpetuating narrative that comes true. You know, I'll give a couple examples of this as well. I was working with a master's runner here um, going into CIM. And, you know, this master runner, he had this narrative, very self-limiting narrative based off the numbers. Because he'd see numbers and he'd look at his splits during a race or a workout and then all automatically start future tripping and creating you know, uh, alarm, alarmist scenarios. Oh, it's really hard. I'm only running this fast. Oh man, how's it going to be in the next, you know, 10 K or in the next, you know, 5 K or whatever. Right. And, uh, you know, just continue to erode his performance. So we, you know, dealt with it, uh, had a couple, uh, talks about different psychological mechanisms for him to employ to bring him back to the present moment, et cetera. But also too, the other thing was getting him in, a relationship with the watch where the watch is a record, not a director. And he just used the watch to record and would look at it at different points as a record of what just transpired. But when he ran his marathon, he didn't look at his watch almost the entire time at all. He just was in the present moment, 
running on feel where, and his race plan was a subjective, how do you feel race plan? And he ended up PRing by 12 minutes, right? And had that athlete's elation of, oh, I PR, but also too that competitors, oh, I, I think I could have gone faster or, you know, that there's some more in the tank. And he had been struggling to run PRs. He was running 100 mile weeks and stuff and all this stuff before I started working with him. And a lot of it is we backed off the unnecessary volume that was just a vanity metric, really focused on what mattered, but got him to a place where he felt like, oh yeah, six minute pace. I can run that all day, no problem, even if I blow up. And so for him, it was, you know, really comforting to be able to know we practice running so much at six minute pace that even when he started to falter, it didn't, you know, explode to eight, nine, 10 minute pace it still stayed in a very quote unquote respectable tolerance for what his goals and ambitions were. And two, it's to piggyback that on Canova. When we think about Canova and we think about his general philosophy, you know, what I have in the first part of training, like in the general and foundation parts of training, when he's training quote unquote, the physiology, as he puts it, it's do the work monkey mindset. So, you know, an athlete might be running, 12 by K repeats. And the, the, the desired goal would be, say, let's say 310. But then the athlete starts to run 315, 320, 325, 330, but with the same effort on the uh, recovery horizons uh, that were set. And in that stage, in the foundation or fundamental period, Kanova's like, no, just do the work. Don't care. Like, just run the K. Run the K hard. They're training the physiology, right? I do not care if it's 330. As long as it's that 310 effort, it's fine. We have to get the capacity. You have to get the load in. End of story. And that's really hard training because you're tired and you're running slow and there's not a whole lot to get excited about. But then we shift to the specific period where, you know, he. what I love is we're studying the pace, right? And when you study the pace, what matters is you study the pace exactly as de- described. And he tells in one of his many talks, uh, instance where like Moses Mozop, you know, at the time when he was like, you know, ran 203 or low at Boston Marathon, came back and set the world record, I think was 30K in the track or something at pre that year. Just phenomenal killer shape. And they started running a workout and the goal is to run three flats. And then he, Moses ran 305 for one and couldn't recover. Uh, to run, you know, three, three flat again. So they just stopped the workout. And he said, then I give three days pff, recovery. Then we come back to that workout. <laughs> like if an, a Western coach thought of that, they would just freak out. Cause the whole plan now is like messed up. He's like, but Canova is very simple in the specific period. You study the pace. If the athlete can't study the pace because of weather, because of, you know, hydration, nutrition, recovery, whatever the reason, you stop the session. There's no point to keep doing or wait, wait and wait until they feel up to studying that pace. And then we study it and you're like, whoa, but they're going to (laughs) melt. It's like, no, they're not going to melt if they take a couple days off. And he said, oh yeah, they will completely off. Nothing. We do nothing. Maybe a walk. I don't know. Nothing. We want to recover. Recovery is what we want. And sure and shit like you know they came back to that same workout and he blasted it right because he was recovered and he was able to study the pace and that's really i think what we have to remember is did he get one or two less sessions in than was planned by his coach in that period in his build-up yes did it make him worse no and that's the correlation we often think is like if i'm absent or i miss a day I'm going to get so far behind and then I got to quote unquote, make up the workout, make up the volume. No, 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 no. Those are signals and symptoms. Your body and the athlete's not ready. And it might not be any objective measure available to you. There might not be an HRV. There might not be a heart rate. There might not be anything else in the athlete telling you, I don't feel ready. And we know from Carl Foster's work, right? The RPE self-reporting scale is wildly accurate, (laughs) amazingly accurate. The subjective interpretation of the athlete is very, very damn accurate. Listen to that first and foremost, right? That's why the value of journaling or like a daily check-in, you know, like I had athletes uh, when I was coaching collegiately do like a, just a quick morning check-in, a quick like before the uh, tr- practice check-in, a quick after work check-in and a quick 
check in that night. It took like 60 seconds each time. It's basically three questions. How are you feeling? Are you tired? Are you injured? And it was just, that was it. And they just did that four times a day every day. And we got a, a lot of trends. We got a lot of patterns. And we could then see like, oh, when this person reports at this time that they're feeling tired, that then, you know, impacts the rest of the day or two or three days down the road. And for that person, we could craft a more objective narrative to complement their subjective feedback. You know, I, I think to sum up what you just said there, and maybe even what this podcast is about, is it's, it's underst- be clear and understand whatever data you're taking what its purpose is and what it's telling you and it needs to have a purpose and it needs to it needs to also be kept in its uh, appropriate amount and then the other part is look for trends like one one piece of data doesn't mean anything one low hrv doesn't mean anything it's the trends that matter, the accuracy, the reliability, the importance of one measurement doesn't tell us much. Like look for trends over the long haul, which means look for things that are sustainable in terms of your measuring. And then the last part I'd say, and something that you know we talked about a lot in this podcast is make sure it's not the data, the measurement isn't getting in your way. If it's restricting you, if it's causing you to not be able to go to that next level or perform up to your ability, throw the watch out and put it on the sideline. Give it to your coach. Like, stop wearing it. And I, I think, you know, we're not anti-data. We're not anti-measurements. We're just saying, like, get some clarity on what you're using for it for and then make sure it doesn't get in the way of both yourself in terms of the training you're developing and then in your athletes in terms of restricting them to a certain performance level um, that they might be able to get beyond. Right. And that's why I've become such a big proponent of, say, nasal breathing on runs, right? Especially easy runs. That can be the measure when you're, you start to practice it and have a familiarity with it of if you're running easy enough, because it is, right? As soon as you reach that ventilation tipping point where you feel like you need to breathe through your mouth to get enough oxygen, you might not be running, quote unquote, easy enough on that run. Because when we think about the broad strokes of things, and it's a quick little tangent here, about the way the body interprets stress or the way the body interprets activity with the parasympathetic and you know sympathetic nervous systems, the fight or flight, rest and digest, if your goal is rest and digest, you know, you want to make sure from that recovery standpoint, you're not elevating that uh, sympathetic nervous system unnecessarily, right? It's why Steven Seiler had that epiphany when he saw that world cross country, world class cross country skier walk up the hill on her easy day for polarized training. It was just a, a discipline of saying, look, today is not the day that I'm trying to elevate and get that in. Today's the day I'm just trying to like get restored, rest and digest. It's part of my recovery, you know, portfolio or, you know, it's just like a big meal. It's like a, it's, it's like a nap. It's an activity that is meant to have purposely restorative components. Not I got to run 10 miles a day on my non-workout day because that's the only way I'm going to get all the volume in to satisfy this weekly requirement of you know, distance covered in an arbitrary seven day period that my coach set. So use the better metric that's available to make sure the activity is at the appropriate intensity, density, duration you want is going to lead to the better performance down the road. Because otherwise we can create, as we've seen, these very, very convolutive narratives that we think they work hard all the time, you know, no pain, no gain, go hard or go home mentality is what gets results. But, it, you know, Steve's famous book, Peak Performance, you know, says rest preceded by stress is what equals growth. Without the rest, doesn't matter how much stress you put on yourself, there's no growth, right? 
So you need to have that balance. Spot on. Balance. Figure it out. That's what we're and all about. if you about. want help if- figuring it out, we have a place for you to come and join with like-minded people who are on the same journey. That's right. The Running Scholar Program. Get on board. You're missing out. It's a new year. Become a new you, which means a better coach, a better runner, a better athlete. The pathway to get there, we think very strongly, is the Running Scholar Program. For less than a dollar a day. Yes. Less than a dollar a day. Promise you won't be disappointed. Get on board. Join the community. Join in on these deep conversations because... You know, what you're hearing in the podcast, those are the sorts of conversations we're having in our monthly Zoom Scholar Training Talk meeting. So get on board. It will be the best buck a day you spend, if not holler at us, because that's what that's our goal. Make it the best dollar a day that people spend on in their life. Love it. Well, thanks for listening. Check it out. And uh, happy new year to everybody. Let's uh, get better. Become better coaches. Join the scholar program.